great. Perfect. <laughs> Preschoolers, perfect. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Karis and Carissa. I guess, you know, I, I look at my wife and my daughter up here and I think, man, how does a guy like me get surrounded by beautiful women like that? If that doesn't prove, if that doesn't prove there's a God, I don't know what does. Really, it's just, it's amazing. So, how does a hillbilly like me get, man. <clears throat> so this morning, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, and if you turn in your Bibles there, we're going to start a series this morning. We're going to be studying this book of the Bible, the book of Romans, and um, I don't know how long it's going to take us. It'll probably be a while, uh, months, maybe a year, maybe more. Um, I promise we'll take some time off here and there because you've got Christmas and different special days and so forth. But there's, why we do this is this. There's two different, two different approaches to preaching. There's topical preaching, and then there's exegetical preaching, it's called. In topical preaching, you take a topic, and you find out what the Bible has to say about it. And that's very helpful. And then exegetical preaching is when you take a passage of the Bible and you see what it says and you apply it to your life. And I happen to believe that both are important to round out the diet, if you will, to get a nice well-rounded diet as followers of Jesus Christ and God's Word. We really need both. And we've spent a lot of time in sort of topics the last year or so. And so that's part of the reason why it's time now to kind of dig into a dig into a book of the Bible and see what God's saying to us there. And then the second reason why we're doing this is because I do believe that it's very timely because we live in a day right now and a time in our country that we're more divided than ever before. Do you sense that? That it's like every day we're being splintered by something else. And there are all these divisions in our culture whether it's men and women, or whether it's black and white, or it's Republican or Democrat, or liberal or conservative, or, you know, there's just, you name it. It's like every day there's a new splinter. And, and I happen to believe that the church of Jesus Christ is the last hope for mankind. We, we're, we are the only ones who have the ability to experience unity in diversity. Because we're the only ones, we have the strongest common denominator, Jesus. We just celebrated him. He's the one that brings us together. We don't come together because of any ideology or thought or whatever, you know, hobbies. That's not what, that's not what's bringing us together. What's bringing us together is the second person of the Trinity, God himself, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can experience unity in diversity unlike anybody else, and we can express that. And so Romans is a great book because it really addresses that issue. And though we're going to study the book I believe that we're also going to, through the course of this study, we're going to pick up on some pretty good things that will apply to this issue of unity and diversity. And so that's another good reason why we're doing it. So 
Today, what we're going to do is we're going to just look at the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1, and then, um, and then we'll keep on going. But first, I want to give some background, and we're actually going to kind of water ski across the top of the surface and look at the entire book, just, for, just briefly, so you can see where we're going in general, okay? So, this book is written by the Apostle Paul. In fact, it's not a book, it's a letter. And it's got classic letter qualities to it. It's, he's got a greeting, he has a body, and then he has a conclusion. It's a great letter. And there's two reasons why the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. The first is, Paul has not been to Rome yet. But you know, Paul has this heart for just touching everybody. He wants to reach the world, and he intends to go to Rome. He wants to get there, but he hasn't been there yet when he writes, when he writes this letter. And so he's writing this letter as a way to introduce himself to the Roman Christians. The second reason why he's writing this letter is he's writing it to address a conflict that he heard about that was brewing in the church in Rome. And the conflict was between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. You see, they were experiencing racial conflict. You see what I mean? Unity and diversity. Theirs wasn't black and white. Theirs, wasn't, theirs was along Jewish and Gentile lines, but racism nonetheless. You see, when the church began... It was a Jewish thing. Let's just do the math. Let's add it up. Jesus, the Savior, is a Jew. His 12 disciples were Jews. The first followers of Jesus were Jews. On Pentecost, when Peter preached and 3,000 people placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they were Jews. You got it. Jews, Jews. They're all Jews. And when they, when they first followed Jesus, they're, they're, they never believed, they never thought that Gentiles would also place their faith in Jesus Christ. The first Christians really thought that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And that's pretty much as far as they could see it going. And they weren't opposed to Gentiles. They weren't, now when I say Gentiles, you know what I mean? I, I mean most of us in this room probably all of us in this room. I don't, do we have anybody from a Jewish background, you guys? So, okay, so we're all Gentiles. Good, that's us. So uh, I'm, we, we need to diversify. We need some more Jews in this mix. So, we got, so they never saw people like you and me placing our faith in Jesus. They just saw him as a Jewish Messiah. And it wasn't that they were opposed to you and me. And there were a few Gentiles that followed Jesus. It wasn't like it was 100% Jewish. It's just that we were definitely in the minority, the way minority. And so the Jews, as the church began to grow and thrive, they were really struggling with this problem. What do we do with these Gentiles coming into the church? Because we're, because remember, I know you guys, you guys, this is none of us. But back then, when they were coming in, they were coming in pretty dirty. Like, like they were, whoo, they were really bad. And so that was quite an issue for these clean-cut religious Jews 
to see all these kind of dirty Gentiles starting to trust their Savior and come into the church. Now, in the city of Rome, the city of Rome in the year AD 41, the Emperor Claudius, and we're not quite sure why he did this, but uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a picture, there you go. Claudius, handsome guy, just a tragic thing about his right arm, but handsome fellow. Claudius is the emperor of Rome, and in AD 41, for whatever reason, he expelled all the Jews out of the city of Rome. Now, that left a vacuum. There were, now the only people that were left in the city of Rome who were Christians were Gentiles. And for the next 12, 13 years, 12 or so years, that's how it stayed. And the church thrived under Gentile leadership. They were expanding. They were growing. They were doing great gangbusters. And when I say the church was growing, you know we're not talking about the building because they didn't have church buildings at this point. This was house to house, on the streets. It's, it's slaves that are, that are moving about the city and they're doing their various servant, you know, serving in various ways and, and they're carrying this message about this Messiah, this Jesus, and they're sharing this around the city of Rome and the church is thriving under Gentile leadership. Well, 12 or so years later, around A.D. 53, we don't have the exact date, the Jews were permitted to come back into the city of Rome. And so they come back in, these Christian Jews, and they fully expect to uh, take over. I mean, after all, they lead, Jews first, Gentiles second. And so they begin to step, take leadership, and you can see the clash the Gentiles didn't really appreciate that too much. And so now you have a problem. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Romans to address this problem. And let's take a look. I want to skim through. I hope you have your Bible open because we're literally going to skim. And this is going to frustrate the daylights out of some of you because you're going to say, what about this? What about that? My objective here is to not do the details. It's just to paint with a really broad brush so that you can see the, the big theme, okay? That's very important when you're understanding Scripture. So here's the big theme. You can see it as we go through it like this. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. We'll look at this in a moment, but this is the introduction. And in this introduction, the Apostle Paul brings up a very important concept that is huge throughout the rest of the book, this concept called the gospel. And the gospel, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. The gospel, it works. And so he then spends kind of the rest of the book really unpacking what this gospel is and what it looks like. And from Paul's perspective, the gospel is the one thing that can really bring us together. And so, the, so starting in verse 18 in chapter 1, Paul lists these sins. And you can look at the list. It's kind of a nasty list. The sins are very obvious, very grotesque. And some of these sins are actually, these would be sins more common to the Gentiles 
in this church. Sins like idol worship, sexual perversion, disobedient to your parents, slanderers, just all around general nastiness. The obvious ones. The obvious ones. And imagine, if you will, you've got to use your imagination. Imagine, if you will, this letter is being read publicly because that's how it would have happened. So you've got this church. That, so Paul writes this letter, and somebody hand-delivers it, and there's a moderator in the church, and their job would be to read this letter. And they're going to read the letter to the church. And in this church, you have Jews and Gentiles. So they're all, okay, everybody, we're going to gather together. we got a big letter from Paul. Okay, everybody, let's read this letter. And now they're reading the letter. As the, as the reader is going through what we would call chapter 1, you know that there weren't chapters and verses originally. Those have been put in for our, our benefit. So as he's reading what we would call chapter 1, the Gentiles are sort of slinking in their seats. And the Jews are going, oh, man, you guys, you're not kidding. You're nasty people, dirty. And they're all smug. And then he comes to chapter 2, verse 1, what we would call chapter 2, verse 1. And you see what he says? You who pass judgment on others don't have a leg to stand on. This is the Doug Rouse translation. You don't have a leg to stand on because you're doing the exact same things. And then he takes chapter 2 and he says, hey, he kind of highlights the Jewish sins. Sins like being judgmental. Sins like being critical. Sins like being a hypocrite. Because, oh, by the way, Jews, you know better. You've got the law and you still break it. So you see, imagine what's happening. Can you imagine the dynamic in the room as this letter's being read? The Gentiles, they started off sinking in their seats, and the Jews were smug, and now the Jews, it's their turn to be on the hot seat. And then he comes to, Gen- to Rebel, yeah, pick a book, Romans chapter 3, he comes to Romans chapter 3, and comes to the conclusion, chapter 3, verse 9, in essence, hey, we're all sinners. Can we just establish that? Every one of us is a loser. Whether your sins are obvious and gross, or whether your sins are socially acceptable and maybe a little hidden, guess what? We're all sinners. You are equally lost. Let me say it again. Here's the gospel. We're equally lost. We're equally loved. We have an equal opportunity to be restored. That's the gospel. So he establishes in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, we are all equally lost. And then as he comes to the end of chapter 3, he begins to express how we are equally loved and how we have an equal opportunity to be restored. And that's done this way, through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul lays that out, the end of chapter 3. And then Romans chapter 4, he gives an example of what faith looks like, just so that there's no misunderstanding about what faith is. He goes, let me tell you about this guy Abraham. And he uses Abraham as an example of what real faith looks like. And then Romans chapter 5, 
love this chapter. It talks about how your faith not only justifies you, but sanctifies you. Love that. I know those are weird words. Justified means this. Remember, we're all equally lost. So if you think about your checkbook, every one of us is in debt. Justified means God pays the debt and brings you to zero. Woo! Can everybody say, thank you, Jesus? I've been brought to zero. I'm no, I know my debt has been paid. That's called, that's called justified. Sanctified? God says, here, let's put some money in that account. So not only have I gone from in debt to zero, I'm now a millionaire, spiritually speaking. That's Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 6 talks about how this thing changes your life from the inside out. Your old life is effectively dead, man. It's over. You got this whole new... When you're talking about God putting it in your bank account, restoring you like that, man, that old, forget that old life. I'm moving on to something new. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 7 continues the theme. Romans chapter 8 is the, the, the creme de la creme. It's like the, the key chapter in the whole book of Romans. In fact, Romans chapter 8 would be the key chapter. I believe it's one of the key chapters in all of the Bible. And it's probably one of the most dense chapters in all of the Bible. In terms of truth, you could spend months looking at Romans 8. I promise we won't when we get there, but you could. And Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Some of you, many of you know this verse. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you see where Paul's taking you? Oh, we are all lost, equally lost. We are all, doesn't matter what your sins were, it's all bad. But guess what? We're all equally loved. God sees your need. He's met your need. And through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, man, you can be set free. You are no longer condemned. And then Romans 9, 10, and 11 are three of the hardest chapters in the whole Bible to interpret. Literally, experts debate and discuss and argue about these three chapters a lot. But, you know, I'm simple. And so, I just come back to this. I'm not smart enough to have volumes on chapters 9, 10, and 11, but I can, do th- I can see this. The Apostle Paul is a Jewish man. Remember that. He's proud of his Jewish heritage. He's not a Pope. He, he, is, he is a very proud Jewish man. He also is a man who has given everything he's got for Jesus Christ. He is committed to Jesus 100%. And he is also a man who has a passionate heart to share Jesus with Gentiles, with non-Jewish people. And so... He, The Apostle Paul comes, I believe, to chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans, and he starts to, he he realizes something. He's like, oh, wait a second. Oh, my Jewish brothers. Oh, we missed it. Oh, we had the covenant. We had the law. We we had a relationship with God. He chose us, and we rejected him. Oh, 
And Paul, you see his heart coming out. Paul's like, oh man, I would, basically I'd give my right arm. I'd die if, if I could to, to bring my Jewish friends into this relationship with God. Like that's his heart. And then Paul, he's kind of in this pensive state. He kind of sees the silver lining in the cloud, and he, and he says, well, but maybe, maybe if the Jews rejecting God, maybe the good thing is that by rejecting God, it opened up the way for the Gentiles to come in. And maybe, so maybe that's a good thing. It, well, it is a good thing, but I love the Jews, but I love the Gentiles. You see Paul torn between the two. And, and his conclusion is, in essence, hey, in Christ, we're all one. Oh, hallelujah. Glorious. But, but he's wrestling. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, you see the Apostle Paul just wrestling with that. Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 13, Paul gets very, very, very practical. This is what faith in Jesus Christ does to your daily life. And then Romans chapter 14, I love Romans chapter 14 because Paul starts addressing the Gentiles. Because remember, the Jews were pretty clean cut and the Gentiles were not. And so these Gentiles are coming into this church and, and they're doing Gentile things that would really gross Jews out. They're bringing their bacon sandwich to church. And the Jews are like, man, get that out of my face. What are you doing with the bacon sandwich there? And the Gentiles are like, ah, oh, shut up. I like bacon. I'm eating my bacon. And the, and the, Jews, have, and the Jews are like, they got the Sabbath. You got you to gotta follow the Sabbath. And they have all these rules about the Sabbath. You got the Gentile guys mowing their lawn on the Sabbath. Hey, you're not thinking anything of it. The Jews have all of their different special days, their special things that they do. Gentiles don't have any of that. They're, they're, they, like, literally, they, you know, you realize that religion has its own set of baggage, but the world has a, a different set of baggage. It's just two different sets of baggage. But the Gentiles, they bring their dirty baggage into the, you know, into the church, and, and frankly, they were offending the Jews. And so the bottom line for Paul in Romans chapter 14 is, hey, knock it off, Gentiles. Don't, you know, don't let your stupid stuff offend your Jewish brother or sister. And he kind of bottom lines it by saying, look, if you want to eat your bacon sandwich, go for it. Just don't rub it in the face of your Jewish friend. Let's love your friend. Let's not make a big deal out of this. Let's not be divided over this stuff. That's Romans 14. It's very interesting. And then Romans 15 and 16, he brings his conclusion. He kind of wraps it up, but boy, it's anything but a simple conclusion. It's deep and it's rich, and there's a lot in chapters 15 and 16. So do you see, kind of in a very bird's eye view, this is the letter of Romans. He's trying to bring these two people together and we come together here, I'll say it again, equally lost, equally loved, with an equal opportunity to be restored back to God. That's the gospel. That's what unites us. Whether you eat bacon or not, that's, that's between you and God. But Jesus is the one who unites us. And so that brings us now, let's look at Romans chapter 1 and the time we have left Oh, I put on my glasses, now I can see. Wow. Okay. 
We'll do it. Romans chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 17. It says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now first, I want to thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Kind of a funny thing there, just real quick, an aside, verse 14, both the Greeks and non-Greeks. The Greek word for Greek, which sounds kind of funny, but the Greek word for Greek there is the word barbaroi, the, we would say barbarian. Barbaroi, barbarian. And it was not a, a good word initially. Uh, the Jews called them barbarians because to the Jewish ear, their language sounded like babble, sounded like they were stuttering. So you're a b -b barbarian. That's where the word comes from. Means absolutely nothing for the text, but now maybe you can win that on a trivia quiz if it comes up. Verse 16, for Paul, for Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to the last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, he says. So right away in Paul's introduction, there are three themes that come out. And he's going to repeat these themes throughout the rest of the book. There, he's, he's, It's an introduction, so he's literally setting the stage. So he obviously doesn't go too deep into them, but he's setting it up for the rest of the book. And the first theme is this, the gospel. The, the word gospel means good news. I say it's the best news ever. That's the gospel. 
Because the gospel is this. God wants to have a right relationship with you. Can you hear that? God wants to have a right relationship with you. That's good news. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, the king of everything, he wants to have a right relationship with you. About four or so years ago, many of you know this story, but four, four years or so ago, my wife and I hit a very, very rough patch in our marriage. And, and you as a church were very gracious to us, and you uh, put me on a sabbatical for three months, and, and you sent us to Colorado for a specialized counseling clinic uh, that gears itself towards pastors and their wives. And, and we're forever thankful for your love and care for us. During that time, it looked like our marriage was over. Um, we were literally even separated for a month or so, six, seven weeks. And, uh, and there was even talk at that point, we weren't sure if we were even going to go to Colorado together. That's how bad things were. And um, I'll never forget, though, the day when we were in the counseling there in Colorado when my wife said to me that she wanted to make this work. And, you know, we knew that we had a lot of work to do, obviously, but there's something about that moment where the, we turned the corner where we, we confessed and admitted, we're going to make this work. This, this, we're going to stick. We want this relationship. We're going to fight for this, right? There's something powerful about that moment. And as powerful as that moment was for the two of us, this is infinitely more powerful. Can you hear it? The God of the universe says to you, I want to work this out with you. I want to be reconciled with you. And I, and I don't just want to I don't just want to work it out like I want to I want an actual intimate relationship with you. I want a good relationship with you. That's what God wants with you and me. That's the gospel. That's the best news ever. The God of the universe wants a right relationship with you and with me. And not only that, he has done everything that he can do in order to make it happen. He has committed, he bankrupted himself. He literally did that, the Bible says. He committed all of his resources to making this work with you and me. And that's the second point there. Jesus is, he's the crux of the gospel. He's the central figure of this thing called the gospel. Without Jesus, there's no good news. He is the good news. And you look at what he says here. I love this in verses 3 and 4. Just He says this, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. 
So the first part of that, his regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. In other words, Jesus was 100% human. Jesus had a family tree. He had a grandma and a grandpa and a great-grandma and a great-grandpa, and he had cousins and he had uncles. Jesus had a whole family tree. And he could trace it all the way back to King David and further back. So Jesus is 100% human. And then his second point, that Jesus then, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection. Jesus is 100% God. When it says that he was appointed, it doesn't mean that Jesus became God when he rose from the dead. No, no, no. He rose from the dead because he's God. Rising from the dead proves that he's God. It doesn't make him God. It just proved that he was God. Because check this out. Nobody else, no other person in the history of the world has ever been stone cold dead, buried in the ground for three days, behind a 2,000 pound rock, and then spontaneously started to breathe and rolled the stone away and just walked out of the tomb. And then for 40 days, ate with people, talked with people. Hundreds and hundreds of people witnessed Jesus Christ risen from the dead, still with the scars in his hands. There's no, in other words, what he's saying is, it didn't make Jesus God, it proves that Jesus is God. Only God could do something like that. Isn't that you know what's fascinating is that in the early days of Christianity, in the early days of Christianity, they did not doubt his divinity they questioned his humanity. If you look into church history, you know some of the earliest heresies of the church. In other words, the false teachings. Some of the heresies of the early church were centered around the the humanity of Jesus. They questioned his humanity. They didn't question his divinity. And do you notice where we are now? It's been reversed. Now we question his divinity, but we don't question his humanity. People say, oh, he was a good teacher, really good teacher. But I don't know if he was God. I find that fascinating. The people who lived closest to Jesus, the people who, who interacted with Jesus, they didn't question his divinity. They, oh, boy, that dude's God. They questioned his humanity. And I say that Jesus has to be both. Jesus has to be 100% God and 100% man in order for your salvation to be complete. Otherwise, you and I can't be saved. And here's why. Because we're the ones who have offended him. He is the offended one. We are the offenders. And when you are the one who's offended, you are the one who has the opportunity to either extend forgiveness or not. See, if I, if, I, if I offend, if I do something really bad to Curtis, something really bad, I, just, I mean, I really blow it big. I'm not talking something little. I mean something really big, and I blow it big with Curtis. It's not my place to demand that you forgive me. I have to humble myself and wait. Forgiveness is your choice. You offer it me right but but listen but but bud can't come along and say hey doug um really curtis does forgive you he i know he can't say it right now but he really does bud can't be his spokesman 
And that's a very kind thought. Thank you for offering forgiveness from Curtis. But you can't do that because forgiveness is Curtis's to give, not Bud's. You and I offended the God of the... Have we established that? Romans chapter 1 and 2, we're all equally lost. Whether your sins are gross or your sins are nice, they're still sins. We've all offended the God of the universe. And so now forgiveness is something that he has to extend, which means Jesus has to be God in order to do that. If he's just a representative of God, it doesn't work. Or it's just very unfair. I mean... That's like the worst deal ever. If Jesus is just a representative of God and then he had to go through all that stuff on the cross to take the beating for our sins, I mean, it makes Jesus a very nice guy, but no, 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 no. We offended God and God extended forgiveness. Do you hear the message of the gospel? God wants you back. And God has done everything that he can do to make that possible with you and with me. And then his third point is that the gospel is for everyone. Verse 16, Paul says, that's why I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In other words, if you have the ability to believe, you have the ability to be saved. So do you have the ability to believe? Then you can be saved. It's beautiful. You see, you see, when we get to heaven, and I trust that you do get there, because you understand you only get there through Jesus. So I trust that you receive Jesus as your Savior. But when we get to heaven, there's... Nobody who can say, I did more than someone else to get there. There's nobody in heaven who can say, I'm more deserving than you are, and that's why I'm here. No. We have all come on this equal ground, and it's through Jesus Christ. We have, we have that, the third part of the gospel. We have an equal opportunity to be restored in Jesus Christ. And some people question that. They think that Jesus, that's narrow. Jesus can't be the only way to salvation. Listen, I I got a lot of things to say about that one, but I'll just leave it with this. It's the most fair way to do it. Because now we're all the same. There's nobody in heaven who did something more than somebody else. We were all boneheads. As, 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 you, as I've said before, we're just jerks that need Jesus. That's, that's who we are. That's, like, that's the bottom line of humanity. We're, we're all jerks that needed Jesus, and we're all there because of Jesus and what he did for us. Whether you're Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, or you're some axe murderer who had a deathbed conversion, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the solution for all of us. Isn't that awesome? So, so that's the gospel. Do you see where he's going with this in the book of Romans? Guess what? We're all equally lost. We're going to say this a lot, I think, in the next year. We're equally lost. 
equally loved, and we have an equal opportunity to be restored in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And Paul says, listen, I'm not ashamed of that. That's verse 16. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of that one. I'll preach that one all day long. Why? Well, it works. You catch that in verse 16? It's the power of God for salvation. It works. The only thing that religion can do is religion can maybe, you, you change a few little habits with religion. Religion can clean up the outside a little bit. We can get you a haircut, and we can change your schedule, and we can give you a few Bible verses to read. That's religion. You do a few nice things. And, and, and that's, all, that's all the deeper it can go. The gospel, as we've just learned, is the only thing that has the actual power to change a person from the inside out. God doesn't give you the have to, he gives you the want to. If you, if you need to make changes in your life, and you, and you and I, we all do, we all have things that we know we need to change. Listen, religion says, oh, you have to change it. How's that working for us? Not well. That's why I'm in this place. But the gospel, the gospel gives you the desire. He actually gives you the want to change, not the have to change, the want to change. Because God has done everything necessary to have a right relationship with me. And he changes me from the inside out. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. If you can believe, you can be saved. It's the only qualification. I love that. And by the way, everyone can believe. I guess that's another philosophical argument we can have, but trust me, you don't want to argue with me. I'll win. Everybody can believe. I'm sorry, that was, forgive me, that was silly. Let me just pray. Father, Father, we just want to uh, um, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you actually have met our need before we even knew we had a need. I thank you, Lord, that you can, you're the only one, it seems, you're the only one, God, who can call me like I am and still love me. And I'm so thankful for that. Thank you. And Lord, I'm thankful that there's not a single sin that you can't forgive. I just need to be willing to give it to you. Thank you. And I thank you for the power that you have to change my life from the inside out. And now, friends, with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I just want to lead, you, lead us in a prayer. And if you've not ever prayed this before, I would invite you to do it with me, just right where you're at. And, uh, you know, it's a prayer really to begin your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the prayer would go something like this. You would just say, God, I, I'm sorry for all of the wrongs that I have done in my life. I thank you 
that you have loved me in spite of all my wrongs. And now I ask Jesus to please forgive me for the wrongs that I've done and to make me right with you. And by faith, I trust that you have made me right with you through Jesus. And now I ask for the strength to live for you day by day. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray.